All right. Tonight we're going to go back to the 18 thoughts, 18 thoughts, or 18 Pelagian thoughts, or the 18 points of Pelagian thoughts, however we want to describe this. Um, we're going to go back to that because, well, I wasn't happy with the way Sunday school went, and then some people here wasn't there anyway, so we got to get everyone back on track. And not only that, we need to hurry up and finish the 18 uh, points of Pelagian thought so that we can get back to the decrees of God so that we can get back to the Senate of Dort and the Canons of Dort, which is where we're supposed to be. But the, the, yeah, the car left that road and we're trying to, we're trying to find our way back. So we're going to go back through these. I'll do some review. I'll add some different things to uh, the review just to make sure that um, for those who've got all the notes, that hopefully it'll still be beneficial and then try to and move it. If you have any questions, make sure you ask because um, if we don't have this down and then we go back to the decrees, if we don't have that down, there's no point in studying the canons of Dort. Does that make sense? There's just no point, right? It's just, we'll just throw it out and move on to something else because you have to know these concepts for, and it's, it's just, it's, it's just, um, it's just kind of expected. And it's interesting, I should have, uh, I think I have it. Let's see if I have it here. Yes. Um, the um, I, I do this daily reading of church fathers, and um, it's just interesting that uh, this whole month is Saint Jerome, and uh, during during this uh, for the reading for June nineteenth, um, you have the whole reading. They don't, he doesn't necessarily use the name, but the editors came in and put at the, the bottom, Pelagius, right? Knowing that he is condemning Pelagian thought. But again, Jerome didn't even have to say it or explain what it was because the expectation was everybody knows, right? And it's just amazing that how far we've gone down the wrong way instead of the right way because everyone in Christianity should know who Pelagius is and Pelagian thought. So that, that's sometimes how things work in the Senate of Dort and Canons of Dort. They, there's, an, there's an expectation that you have some of this down. So let's go through this. All right. What is the foundation of Pelagius or Pelagian thought? What's the foundation, the premise? That's number one, okay? What's the premise? The, the number one of the 18 points of Pelagian thought. What is it? All right, his highest attributes are, are his goodness and justice. And remember, that sounds great. So we would have to ask what question? Goodness and justice, all right? Is he, is he going to the Bible and say, okay, God, God's attributes are goodness and justice? Or do we try to make some argument that these behaviors are not just, therefore God could not do that? If the Bible says God is just and then describes a behavior that we don't believe is just, we still have to acknowledge that it's just because God did it and his, his attribute is goodness and justice. Does that make sense? We don't, define, uh, we don't define goodness and justice, right? And then take our definition of goodness and justice and make it what God does or God submits to that. And, that, and Christians do that all the time. God is love, therefore... He can't do this, 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 and this. No, the Bible says God is love, and it describes him doing those things. Therefore, 
his attribute of love has to be consistent with those things. Our understanding of love is wrong. I don't know how Christians get so confused by that. It's pretty basic logic, but, well, we won't go into that. All right, here we go. All right, so everybody got, everybody understands that that's number one, right? And remember, he goes on to say, without them, God would not be God. A God who lacks the perfection of goodness and justice is unthinkable. Again, I think what Pelagius is doing, he's got a concept of goodness and justice, and he's reading that onto God. And again, you go, does the Bible describe God as being good and just? If we say yes, then any action he does has to be good and just, even if we don't like it. We don't explain away the action. And for him, God choosing some would not be just. But if the Bible says God chooses some, it is just. Does that make sense? Like, we probably could do an entire series of lessons on that concept because it's just a, it's a, it's a, it's a flaw. It's a logical flaw. I mean, there's so many different aspects of it, but I hope everyone got that. All right. Number two. Okay. If God is altogether good, then everything he has created is good. That sounds good. You see what I did there? Right. That sounds good, but we have to get a little bit more information about what he meant, right? Okay, it's coming down. It's raining outside. For those listening online thinking that we're under attack, we're not. That's, uh, that's rain and thunder, and I don't know what else is going on. But we, we'll, we will survive. All right. So I, I go ahead and say that on the recording. That's where I don't get, have to answer all the emails asking what was going on. Okay. All right. Um, so, but we have to get some information here, right? Um, if God is altogether good, then everything he has created is likewise good. There's a part of us who like, like, would say, amen, you're right, Pelagius. I want to make sure we, this is very important. Whenever you're dealing with theology, when you're dealing with logic, you're dealing with philosophy, you're just dealing with anything. Just because something sounds good, you have to make sure that what they're saying is necessarily the right thing. Like, just because it sounds good, you have to ask more questions and make sure you understand. People can use the same words you use, but have different meaning or a different understanding. So what does Pelagius do with this idea that if God is altogether good, then everything he has created is likewise good? All of his creation is good, including man. Adam was created by God sinless and entirely competent to all good, with, with an immortal spirit and a mortal body. Let's get, so far, that, that doesn't sound bad in any way, shape, or form, all right? Now, he goes on to summarize Pelagius' thought. He, speaking of Adam, was endowed with reason and free will. With his reason, he was to have dominion over irrational creatures, and with his free will, he was to serve God. Freedom is the supreme good. Uh, um, freedom is the supreme good, the honor and glory of man, right? And it cannot be lost. So what he is saying is God is good. Everything he creates is good. He created man is good. And that goodness involves what? Freedom. Freedom. And it cannot be lost. In other words, how Adam was created, because it was created good, it had to somehow remain good in some way, shape, or form. Everybody understand that? That's the assertion that is being made. That's, that's critical, right? 
Um, it is the sole basis of the ethical relation of man to God who would have no unwilling service. All right? Um, it consists of the freedom of choice and the absolute equal ability at every moment to do good or evil. God created man was good, and one of the key aspects of this goodness was freedom, right? It, uh, it consists essentially of the freedom of choice and the absolute equal ability at every moment to do good or evil. Right? And it cannot be lost. This is the Pelagius idea, the Pelagius thought. Pelagius rooted his view of human nature and free will in his doctrine of creation. Free will consists chiefly in the ability to choose either good or evil. This ability or possibility is the very essence of free will. According to Pelagius, this ability is given to man by God in creation, and is, it is an essential aspect of man's nature. Simply put, second point of Pelagius thought, he created every, because God is good, he created everything. Everything has to have some element of good, and it cannot be lost. All right? Everybody got that? Everybody understand that? All right. This is, this is, I cannot stress to you the importance of that thought because that thought has dominated pretty much all of society 2019. It's in churches. It's everywhere because people still want to believe that, okay, man was created a certain way and they want to believe that even though the fall happened, certain aspects were not lost. And obviously they believe that this freedom was not lost. The only problem with that argument is what? If that freedom was not lost, then people could, should be able to choose what? To do good and be able to choose it perfectly. Right? Right. Yeah, some people should. Right? Some people somewhere. Because there's nothing, there's nothing inherent. And, and that just makes no sense because most of the time, choosing good would have long-term benefits. So just rational thought would be like you should, but look at our culture, look at our world, look at history, wars, destruction, slavery, murder. I mean, you, and you're kind of like, so nobody could just go, because according to this idea, we all possess equal ability to choose either good or evil. There is nothing taking away that freedom. I mean, that, now, semi-Pelagians may come in and try to modify it, but they still are basically arguing the same point. All right, what's the third premise? Yeah, inconvertibly good. It cannot be changed. All right, very good. Okay, that's a, you got a, good, uh, that's a good way of describing it. All right, so make sure we get this. The third premise is that nature was created not only good, but inconvertibly good. Now, I kind of alluded to that in the second point, but I'm driving it home now here in the third. Now, according to Pelagius, this is true because the things of nature persist from the beginning of existence to its end. Uh, Pelagius' view of, views of freedom, um, his view, uh, Pelagius viewed freedom in its form alone. Right now, that may not mean anything to you, but that's okay. He viewed it in its form alone, and in its first stage, and there he fixed the concept and left it right there. He thought of freedom and this idea in its first stage and did not take it any further. 
Um, he left it in a basically a perpetual state between good and evil, ready at any moment to turn either way. It, it is without past or future, absolutely independent of everything without or within. So Pelagius thinks of this idea that this freedom, that it, it basically exists in between good and evil, like there's good and there's evil, here's this freedom, this idea of, of free will concept, that it's right here in between, and at any moment it can turn either way, based off a choice, it has no past or no future. Past actions doesn't influence, future uh, thoughts doesn't influence, it just exists independently, it's, ab and again, his exact words, absolutely independent of everything without or within. Nothing without can influence it. Nothing within can influence it. Nothing without or nothing within. Now, this is what drives me crazy, all right? You, uh, you know parents who are semi-Pelagian. But yet, they want to protect their kids from everything. Why? If the will is not influenced by anything without or within, don't say, oh, you can't listen to that. You can't watch that. Don't hang out with them. Why? Nothing can influence their choice. Well, that's being consistent with their semi-Pelagianism. But they, they become, they almost become, they become Calvinists when it comes to, now it's a, no, I believe the will is totally depraved and these people can influence that total depravity, so I've got to protect them from everything. It's like, uh, either make up your mind here, right? But uh, logical inconsistency um, in, within the body of Christ, well, that's about the one, the only thing you can be certain of in Christianity is that it's illogical, it's inconsistent, and it's ignorant. Okay, that's, my, that's my assessment of Christianity. Illogical, inconsistent, and ignorant. That's Christianity. I hate that that's true, but when you have people who are semi-Pelagian literally acting in a way that's not semi-Pelagian, I don't get it. Lord, I pray for, my, I pray for these lost people that you can you know, work... Wait, wait, what? Whoa, 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 whoa. God can't influence them. They'd be going against their will. And if their will is completely independent of anything within or without, do you want them to be free or do you want God to somehow work on them? Right? They pray like a Calvinist, <laughs> believe like a Pelagius, right? Like, how does that work? Like, get your, get your theology consistent, right? If I believe they're independently free, nothing can influence them, then what's the point of praying? And if I do want God to influence them, then I want God to what? Override their free will? Manipulate their free will? Break down their free will? That's not freedom. That's not freedom. So, again, uh, this, this whole idea. So, he believes that this, uh, you know, I'm going to go back and read this whole thing. So, everything was created good, Right? Uh, because the thing, uh, and Pelagius, he viewed freedom and, and form and, and it's, uh, you know, oh man, I just went to the footnotes. Okay, okay, yeah, I mean, I can give you all the footnotes. Uh, he views freedom and its form alone, and, oh, there we go again, 
and its first stages, um, and he left it there. Uh, make sure you understand this idea of freedom. It stays in a perpetual state between good and evil, ready at any moment to turn either way. It is without past or future, absolutely independent of every, everything without or within. A vacuum, okay, it's, it's basically like a vacuum. It may, it may do something, but it always becomes a vacuum again. Basically think of it, remember I, I showed you, well, for those who weren't here, Pelagius basically believed the will, the, this idea, this freedom, is a clean sheet of paper. Clean sheet of paper. And you, may, and you may do something, right? You may act, but the, uh, but the paper, I'll, I'll get a clean sheet of paper, because I have to do this because this is what I was taught at First Baptist Church in Tuscola, which was absolute stinking heresy, but that's a whole different story. I'm glad my Lutheran pastor fixed me, but okay. They believe so. Inside of us is our will. It's isolated from everything, and it's a blank sheet of paper. And we may make a choice, and we write on it, but immediately the writing goes away. It's always a perpetual clean slate. Nothing is influencing it. Nothing is overpowering it. It's completely free. Right? And again, the way I was taught at First Baptist Church Tuscola, this is how we were born. Innocent. Clean slate. And then we mess it up. No. We're born messed up, okay? <laughs> and therefore, because we're born with a messed up nature, what flows from it? Sin. We don't become sinners by sinning. We sin because we are sinners, all right? Basic uh, Christianity 101. It's just basic concept here, all right? So, he wants to make sure that somehow it's a clean slate. It's clean. No, there's no clean slate. Um, as he goes on to say, um, uh, this clean slate, which man can write whatever he pleases. It's a restless choice, which after every decision, right? You can write whatever you want on, the, on, on your choice, right? But it immediately reverts, uh, it reverts to indecision and oscillation. It, re it, reverts, it reverts back to nothing. The human will, as it were, was the eternal Hercules at the crossroad who takes a first step to the right, then a step to the left, and ever returns to its former position. Sin doesn't change it. Nothing changes it. I mean, I wish that was true. Now, of course, if that is true, like if you truly believe the will is free, then all I got to do is look at Christians and go, no excuse, perfection or discipline. But no, no semi-Pelagians teach that way, do they? Because guess what they find out? Everyone in the church sins. I wonder why. The will's free. Choose not to sin. Or, if they try to teach that, then what do they do? They reduce sin to only mean abortion, homosexuality, drug use. Yeah, they, they create a list of, well, they, just, they almost wipe out venial. They just basically say, you're only committing a sin when you do one of these really big things. Right. And that's, that's, all, that's where you're going to be forced to go. Or you're, or you're inherently denying the existence of free will. Like either, I don't get it. All right. All right. Um, again, it goes on to say, when a person sins, according to Pelagius, the nature of the, nature of the will undergoes no change. 
No, it's not deformed in any way, shape, or form. There is no inherent corruption in man. There is no predisposition or inclination to sin that is itself a result of sin. Every act of sin flows from a fresh beginning, a blank tablet that is inscribed with nothing. There's no inherent sin. There's nothing. Just free choice. And remember, I was taught that as an independent fundamental Baptist when I got into the argument. No. This is what they want to say. You're totally depraved, but the will is not influenced. That's not total. <laughs> so deny total, oh, they don't want to deny total depravity because that would make them Pelagian, but they, they were trying to teach Pelagianism. <laughs> but again, if I would have asked them who Pelagius was, none of them would have had a clue, yet they were believing something that he taught. When you believe something and you don't know the origin of it, it's foolish to believe it. All right? Everybody got that? All right. What's the fourth premise? All right. The fourth premise Pelagius, uh, of Pelagius is that human nature as such is indestructibly good. That is, um, it's, the, it's the essence of man. It remains good. The essence of, of man remains good. Nothing can get rid of it. Nothing changed it. The fall did not change it. Nature cannot be altered in any substantial way. It can only be modified, now his, his words, accidentally. But accidentally here is not the way you think he means accidentally. All right, so we're going to have to define what he means here. So, main thing is, the nature cannot what? Be altered in any major or substantial way. It can only be modified accidentally. Now, this is the term accidentally here, does not mean that something happens unintentionally as a result of misfortune. It refers instead to Aristotle's distinction. And I know everyone here knows Aristotle's distinction. Okay, do what? Aristotle? Aristotle's distinction between objects' substance and what he would refer to as accidents or accidents, right? Between an object's substance and its accidents, and this refers to something's external perceivable qualities. All right, so let's try to, I know that we're getting to really some very philosophical concepts here, but this is like, if you don't get that, see, this is an interesting idea. All right, let me make sure we realize this. Does everyone understand that uh, we could go back to certain major philosophers, that certain philosophers had a profound impact on Christianity? That some would argue that, that you know, m many Christian doctrines are more Aristotle and more philosophers than it comes from the Bible. Now, many don't would never acknowledge that or accept that, but even when you get into, well, one God coexisting is three distinct persons, right? When you get into persons, substance, one essence, you're using terminology that was being talked about by the philosophers that came into Christianity. Because you don't get 
one substance, one essence. You don't get that terminology in the Bible, right? Okay, philosophers came along. So, like, Christianity owes a lot of its thinking to philosophy, and to deny that means you're foolish. All right, and that's why the study of philosophy is important. And here we have an Aristotle's distinction is coming into mind. So let's see if we can understand his distinction, all right? He draws a distinction between an object's substance and what he refers to as accidents, A-C-C-I-D-E-N-S, if I can spell right. A-C-C-I-D-E-N-S. So an object's substance and its accidents, or as he, they use the term accident, right, or accidentally, right? He's not saying that something just happens by, you know, a mistake, or it just happens, you know, and you don't know how. He, he's using the term accidents in the way Aristotle would draw a distinction. And what's the distinction between substance, and now let me define what he means by accidents here. Refers to something's external, perceivable qualities. Qualities that are not essential to the thing's being. So you have something that is um, the, the focusing on the substance of something versus something referring to what? External perceivable qualities. It has nothing to do with the essential part of the, of the being itself. Do you see what? why Pelagius is using this? Does everybody see why he's using this yet? What does he want to not be changed? The nature, the, the essence of the man, right? But he understands that something could change and so he's putting it in the category of accidentally or accidents using the Aristotle idea that what could change? Perceivable qualities, qualities external, therefore maintaining that what did not change? The nature, the, the essence of the man. Alright? So uh, they're on the periphery. They are not essential to the thing's being. What it is. In other words, I'll state it in a simple way. One's behavior may change when we commit sinful deeds, but these actions do not change one's nature. There, you like that better? Right, did, did, did that make more, did that, everybody got it? I, I got some looks here. Okay, one's behavior may change, there's the accidents, when we commit sinful deeds, but these actions do not change one's nature. Right, why? Because what is he, what's his argument? It can't, the, the nature can't be changed. He needed something to change because he acknowledged that people do, people commit horrible acts, right? But he wanted to make sure the acts were viewed from an external part, but what was still intact? Freedom, goodness was still intact. So what did he have to borrow from? Aristotle. He had to go to philosophy to do so. Right? Now, be fair, a lot of the church fathers ran to philosophy. So don't condemn him for using philosophical terminology or philosophical categories. Don't condemn him for doing that. Some reformed people will do that. And I'm like, well, wait, slow down. 
We can go to Augustine, the A's borrowing from, we can go to all, I mean, I mean, I read the church fathers every single day, so no one can argue with me about what they say. I read them every single day, all right? So um, they all do it. The issue is, from a Christian perspective, the philosophers may help, but what's authoritative? Scripture, right? So if you borrow from a philosopher using different categories, but those categories seem to, in a substantial way, go against the teaching of Scripture, who wins from a Christian perspective? Scripture. That's how it's supposed to work, but it never does because what we do, what, who ultimately becomes the authority? We become the authority to interpret it any way we want. Pelagius tries to interpret it any way he wants. The only difference is, what was the difference between Pelagian and now? There was a church that had authority, right? And that's why he got condemned and booted. Okay, go. He, he couldn't run off and do what? <laughs> Start his own church. I mean, I guess technically it could, but it wouldn't have worked anyway, really, because there was some uni, uni, unity in the church, especially back at the time of Pelagian. Oh, yeah, governmental involvement, too. Yeah, the government could stop, stop it as well, okay? because it, he would have been... Uh, condemned not only from a religious perspective, but of a civil perspective, right? All right, the fifth point. All right, the fifth point. Now, this follows from the first four. This flows right from the first four. These, this is building a house, okay? Now, this is the point. That evil or sin can never pass into nature. That evil or sin can never pass into nature. Now, what is he arguing so hard for? That, yeah, he, yeah, the human nature, exactly. What he's fighting so hard for is he understands sinful behavior. He understands sinful actions. But what he wants to protect is the nature, the will. He wants to protect it. He defines sin as a willing, willingness to do what righteousness forbids as that from which we are free to abstain and accordingly what we, what we ever and always can avoid by the proper exercise of our will. So let me give you that again. He defines sin. This is Pelagius' definition of sin. A willingness to do what righteousness forbids as that form which we are free to abstain and accordingly what we ever and always can avoid by the simple, proper exercise of the will. That we can avoid sin anytime simply by the exercise of what? The will. Now, if the will is free, that's, he's being consistent, is he not? If the will is free, that's, that's why I get very... Okay. This, and this is, and we'll, I'm going to have to leave Pelagius here for a second. I need to, I need to go, uh, we need to look at some of the other church fathers. Because there is this, this is the way some church fathers describe it. Even some modern reform people. When we were lost, we were incapable of obey, obeying. Right? Now that we're saved, we're capable of obeying. Now, you've got to be careful with how you say that because you're almost what? You're just taking Pelagianism and you're just transferring it from the lost people. <laughs> they don't have it. 
And now we, because of salvation, we now possess that. And many preachers preach it that way. You can overcome with the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God dwells you. It empowers you. It get, well, whoa, 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 whoa. Okay. It empowers me for what? Because if it's God giving me the strength to fulfill, do I have the ability to be perfect? And then they always back up, don't they? <clears throat> the Spirit of God empowers you. He strengthens you. But you can't be perfect. Well, what kind of power is that? What kind of strength is that? Right? How much power do I have? So we got to be, even Christians, I mean, they say that kind of stuff all the time. I mean, you've heard those sermons all the, I hear it all the time on Christian radio. Oh, and sometimes I'm just like, I want to call in and go, really, you've got the power to be perfect? And they immediately will say, no, they'll say no. Well, then you just told me God's indwelling me and giving me power. Power to do what? Just to be 50% better? Don't make a claim that you've never thought through, right? Think it through. I don't know how it all works, but something there doesn't make sense to me in my mind, right? Because then I would look at Christians and go, anyone who can't be perfect is not a Christian. Therefore, no one... <laughs> it can't be that easy, all right? But you get what he's saying. Pelagius defines sin as a willingness to do what righteousness forbids, as that form from which... Uh, we are free to abstain and accordingly what we can ever and always can avoid by the proper exercise of the will. All you got to do is exercise your will and boom, you're set to go. Sin is always an act and never a nature. If you want to write anything down, that's Pelagian thought. Sin is always an act and never a nature. Sin is always an act and never a nature. Sin is always an act and never a nature. Everybody got that? Do you know how many Christian parents believe that? They focus on the action, 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 and ignore the nature. They ignore the nature. And so they, they, they literally believe that, hey, as long as my kids don't watch the right thing, wrong thing, see the wrong thing, hang out with the wrong people, and I isolate them from the world, boom, I can prevent it. You can't change the nature. No kid can corrupt your kid because your kid's already corrupted. Your kid, no one can make your kid sin because he's already a sinner. Does that make sense? And, and that's how the world always acts, right? Oh, okay. All right. We had a school shooting. We have a school shooting. Okay. Video games. It's video games. Video games is the cause. Oh, wait, 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 wait. Okay. In the 1990s. It's Marilyn Manson. It's Marilyn Manson did it. Oh, wait, wait. I remember going to all the churches around here when I was a teenager. Oh, oh. It's rock music doing this. And back in the 50s when Elvis came, then they were on the radio smashing his... The singles on the air, smashing them. Rock and roll is the number one uh, contributor to juvenile delinquency. You, you know, we all know that's why Cain killed Abel, right? He was listening to Elvis. Obviously, Elvis didn't exist. Nothing. He killed him because of his nature. So many times Christians speak of sin as an act and not a nature. That's Pelagianism. Pelagianism. 
But guess what? People act, people do things, not knowing why they do that. Like that's, that's the thing about the human race I hate. We're like, we're like animals. My dog doesn't think about why he's doing what he's doing. Right? He doesn't stop and go, hmm, why am I chasing my tail? Don't really know why I chase my tail, but I do. Why do I bark and there's nothing there? Why, why does the dog do this? Because he's just acting, right? Human beings are not supposed to be animals. So when you think something and you act something, but you've never taken two seconds to figure out why you think that way and why you do that, then let me make it clear as I can, you're acting like an animal. You're proving the doctrine of evolution. Because according to Christians, we didn't evolve, right? We were endued by our creator, right? With rational thought. We're not just animals. Well, then why don't we use it? The thing I sent out today in the chat, asking about a, a psychological thing, and that psychological concept uh, basically states that as people, we, we, uh, I was reading this book today, the argument is we can't trust anything about ourselves. Everything we think is flawed, everything we feel is flawed, we can't trust anything about ourselves. And it gives 10 very logical, co you know, co cohesive parts about why we can't trust anything. Because our thinking is so influenced by wrong things. And so it gave this idea that when we see other people commit an act, right, we immediately assign that bad action to their character and to their nature. But when we commit the same act, we blame it on something external, right? So if we're sitting at a light and someone runs a red light, jerk, inconsiderate, moron, loser, doesn't care about anyone else but themselves. But if we run a red light, we're like, oh, man, oh, I, I, I looked away. There, oh, I was distracted. And it has nothing to do. Right? This is a psychological thing that people do. Husbands and wives do this all the time, right? Right? When you're getting to an argument with each other, one is blaming the action on the other by something internally in them, and the other one, but when you're considering your own action, well, it had to be because of this. Well, the kids were bothering me. And no, it's a psychological thing, and most people don't even understand that. We can't trust anything. It's just amazing how we, we like, you see Christian parents walking around, act, literally following the theology of Pelagius, and they don't even know it. Well, why do you do what you do? I don't know why I do what I do. I never thought about what I do. I just don't think. Well, then, you know, I, I, I don't have enough to say. I just give up. I just give up on the human race. I don't even know. But you see, people do that all the Why do you do that? Well, I've never thought about why. Well, you, what do you mean you never thought about why? I, couldn't, I, I can't sleep because I'm always like, I wonder why I do that. I wonder why I do that. I wonder why I think that. Where did that idea come from? Where was the origin of that idea? Where did that come from? Where did that come from? And then 13 hours later, I'm still awake reading 14 books trying to figure out why I did what I did. And I don't understand why I did what I did, but I know who came up with the idea. And like most people, well, that's just ridiculous. Oh, so you, when you live your life acting and doing based off what someone else came up with, and you don't even know that's why you're doing it. This, 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 
Christianity operates from Pelagian thought and they don't even know who the man is. Don't you think you would want to know who the man is that you're following? All right, so what's the main thing he, he taught, teaches in this point? Remember, the fifth premise is that evil or sin can never pass into nature, all right? And we can overcome it by simply exercising the will. And what's the main point here? Sin is always an act and never in nature. Otherwise, Pelagius insisted God would be the author of evil. If our, if our nature is corrupted, then Pelagius is like, then God is the author of evil. Sinful acts can never cause a sinful nature, nor can, they, can evil be inherited. There, why, why does he want it can't be inherited? Because we can't inherit it from Adam and Eve's fall. Now, of course, the, I think the biblical idea is mommy's sinner and daddy's sinner produces baby sinner. Or, as I used to joke, vipers in diapers, right? That's the biblical model. Uh, he goes on to say, if they could, then the goodness and righteousness of God are destroyed. That's his argument. So he's making an argument he's trying to protect God. Well, you can't protect God by changing the teaching of Scripture. That's the thing. I've said it so many times. Your job is not to protect God. Your job is not to defend God. Your job is to figure out what the Bible teaches. If you believe the Bible is the inspired word of God, whatever it teaches God does, you've got to just accept it. You may, but you don't have to explain it away like, oh, that makes God look bad. I better come in and help him out. You can't fix it. Because there's actions God takes that makes no sense, and they look, it looks at times absolutely horrific, horrible, and ungodly, but that's the, that you just got to accept that fact. Does that make sense? What he did to Job looks messed up. Don't try to explain it away. And whenever I say things like that, then I'll have three Christians calling me going, well, no, no, you see, God was right in doing it because you're, you're trying to defend it. Can't we just acknowledge that he took a human being, right, and said, hey, Satan, see this guy? Come on, do some stuff to him. Oh, oh, kill his kids. That's okay. Now, we can sit there and say, oh, no, it's okay, until it's your kids who are dead. And then all of a sudden, you don't feel so great. You've got to acknowledge God is God and we're not. Right? I can't remember the famous quote. Um, 30 years of being a Catholic priest and the only two truths that I know, there is a God and I'm not him. Right? <laughs> that's a that's a, I like that quote. Okay. So, I mean, there's a lot of truth to that. Right? After all the years of studying the Bible, there is a God and I'm not him. And I'm not, it's not my job to defend him or try to get him off the hook. It's not, how am I to defend him? Right? My job is to say, this is what the word teaches. You don't like it? Join the club. Neither do I. <laughs> okay? The difference is I'm not going to run around and go try to create my own idea. Because if there's a God, there's no, my ideas are not going to be any better. Okay? All right. The sixth idea Pelagius thought. In the sixth idea, the sixth uh, premise, Pelagius explains that sin exists as the results of Satan's snares and sensuous lust. 
Okay, Pelagius explains that sin exists as a result of Satan's snares and sensuous lust. Everybody got that? Sin exists as a result of Satan's snares and sensuous lust. Now, let's just stop right here. Does everyone see the logical fault flaw in Pelagius' thought right here? He's so worried about protecting God. Well, if he acknowledged that sin exists because of Satan's snares and sensuous lust, you can't get God off the hook because who created Satan? What did God do when Satan rebelled? Let him come where? Let him have free reign. What could he have done? Destroyed him. Or put him in the lake of fire and just have him suffer. He didn't. So you still can't get God off the hook, right? So, like, he wants to get God off the hook. Like, it can't be my nature because if it's our nature, then that would make God the author of sin. And then he turns right around and around and wants to blame the very being that God created who is alive. Like, come on, Pelagius. A freshman in philosophy class could argue better than this. Right? Well, no, actually, they can't. Okay, that's... They just argue about everything. Okay. That, that's what freshman philosophy class is akin to a Baptist business meeting. Okay. It's just like, no, I can't. Like everyone, like I've, I've been in philosophy class for a week and now I'm ready to argue about everything. And, I'm like, okay. and you're just like, oh, okay. You've got just enough knowledge to sound dumb. Okay. That's what one of my philosophy professors said. You have the, you have the, you have the, you just, you now have enough uh, knowledge to sound dumb. All right. Which I know it's kind of a, it's kind of funny there, but you get the idea. All right. All right. All right, so you get the idea? So he explains that sin exists as a result of Satan's snares and sensuous lust. These enticements to sin can be overcome by the exercise of virtue. These enticements to sin can be overcome by the exercise of virtue. Even this lust does not arise from the essence of human nature, but is accidental to it. When he says accidental to it, he's not saying a mistake. What is he borrowing from? Aristotle. And what does he mean by accidental to it? It's external. It's periphery to the nature. It has nothing to do with the nature. This lust, right? Now, please note, Satan's snare, uh, uh, the sin is the result of Satan's snares and sensuous lust. This enticement to sin can be overcome by virtue. Even this lust, even the lust, does not arise from the nature. Lust does not arise from your nature, right? It, uh, in fact, the lust is not evil itself. For Christ himself was subject to it, according to Pelagius. Here's the famous uh, thought in Pelagius. This is the famous quote. Are you ready? Now, follow this logic here. 
it, it, um, speaking of lust, right? Okay, regarding lust, it is of sin and inclines to sin, but itself is not sin. Lust, it is of sin and inclines to sin, but itself is not sin. Everybody get the idea? Lust itself does not arrive from where? Does it not arise from where? According to Pelagius' thought, lust does not arise from where? From within. It comes from Satan. Right? And you have a lot of Christians who talk this way, right? Satan's out to get me. Satan's out to get me. Satan is tempting me today. Satan was tempting me today. You hear Christian preachers preach, Satan is tempting you. Satan is tempting you. Satan is tempting you. Temptation first arises from where? Within. The lust is inside of you. The corruption is inside of you. Listen, if there's no lust or sinful nature inside of you, then literally, if, there, if there's nothing inside of you, then it's like, how can I describe this? Um, then it's just someone offering you something that you have no, you have no desire for. You don't know anything about it. It would be like me just uh, uh, walking up and offering something and you don't have a clue what it is. You don't even know what it is because you, it, it, doesn't have any, it doesn't have any appetite inside of you to appeal to. Does that make sense? There's nothing inside of you for that lust to appeal to. So literally, like Satan comes along, here's, here's a sensuous lust, sensual, sensuous thought, but you are, you have no appetite. So it's just appealing like, hey, could you get your will to agree to do this? Like at that point, that, that ten, tends to indicate that actually temptation and lust doesn't really have that much power. That's not the biblical model. The biblical model, why is temptation so strong? Because we're corrupted inside. So what does it appeal to? Our appetite. Our nature. Does that make sense? But we almost have this, and again, it almost kind of comes to the psychological idea that when we look at the actions of others, right, we're like, Messed up people, man. That guy is a pervert. He's disgusting. He's whatever. Because we, we attribute the action to their nature. But when it's us, well, you know, there were circumstances and this was going on and this was going on and, and you got to consider this and this was happening. And we always want to, we always have like, we always place the responsibility like a something else. Satan was trying to tempt me, right? Here's the thing. We all are corrupted inside. But that's not Pelagius' view. All right? But we, that comes up, I'm telling you, I hear preachers who basically preach temptation almost as an external act. How to avoid temptation. How to avoid temptation. All these books. How to avoid temptation. Men, how to avoid temptation. Women, how to avoid. You can't avoid something that's inside of you. Uh, I'm going to run from the corruption. I'm going to run from the corruption. Oh, I can't get away from it. I know, because it's inside of you. Right? Now, are there things out there that can appeal to that? Yes. And now you have to figure out how to balance that out living in a fallen world. Right? How do you work that? But even if you take away all the enticements to sin, the sin is still 
there and it will still manifest itself. Still going to manifest itself. Right? Let me give you an example. Did any parent here teach their kids to lie? Did any parent here teach their kid to be selfish? Did anyone teach their kids here to be mean? Like, I can go on and on. But you see that stuff manifest, even though you didn't teach it to them. And sometimes I love, I hate when parents say this. I, oh, I want to run my head into a brick wall. I don't know where they got that from. Now, if it's a lost person, I got no problem. But when Christian parents, I've heard Christian parents say that, I don't know where they picked that up from. I don't know where they got that. You don't? You, you, you can't think. You can't, yeah, come on, come on. I'll give you a guess, right? Oh, here's an idea. Just don't go on Jeopardy if you're that foolish, right? Come on. Where does it come from? Do you think Adam and Eve pulled Cain and Abel aside and said, okay, guys, here's what you do when you have a disagreement. You cut the throat of the other. Do you think they taught him that? Where else, did they see murder somewhere else? There was no violent video games. No TV. Yeah. So where did it come from? I don't know where Cain picked this up from. I don't know where Cain got this idea. It had to be, well, we don't have any neighbors. It had to be somebody. Okay, I bet you Eve was, I bet you Eve was blaming Adam. He got it from you. And he was like, no, you, he got, obviously we don't know that. I don't want to put words into the text, obviously. But you get the idea. That's what we do, right? So it's just like, but that, that's Pelagianism. That's and I hear Christians, I've heard people, parents in this church say that. I don't know where they got that from. And I just leave church going, oh, oh my church doesn't even know they're talking like Pelagians. But I've heard, I've heard parents in this church say that. I don't know where they picked that up from. And I, just, I just usually don't talk. I just walk by on by. I'm like, I, I don't know either. I just kind of roll my eyes and just keep walking. Because I'm like, does anybody not know where that's coming from? All right, next. Pelagius' seventh premise concludes that there always remains the possibility and indeed the reality of sinless men. Pelagius concludes that there always remains the possibility and indeed the reality of sinless men. Now listen to this. I love this. Men can be perfect, and some have been. No, he doesn't give names. Right. Um, he concludes that there always remains the possibility, and indeed the reality, of sinless men. Pelagius concludes that there always remains the possibility, indeed the reality, of sinless men. Now, to be fair, I'd have to go through all Pelagius' writing. He may have some people. He may take something like Job chapter 1. Right? Everybody look at Job 1. Job 1, I believe it's verse 1. Look at Job. I think it's Job 1 verse 1. I'm just going from memory on the, on the way here. Uh, 
on American Family Radio, they were playing a sermon from the book of Job. There you go. Blame us upright. There you go. He would probably take something like that. Everybody see? I'm not, I'm not saying he did. I'm saying if I was trying to make his argument, I would run to Job 1 1. Okay, I know that's the first thing that would come to my mind. Like, I, I'll help you out, Pelagius, right? I'll find you some verses, okay? And, and again, you, uh, the reason I would, I would think of the verses is when I read, when I study Pelagius, what did I always try to do? I always try to agree with them, try to prove their point, and then take their point to its logical conclusion and then look for a counterpoint. Always start with agreement, take it to its logical conclusion, then flip it and then argue against it. Because if you start with their view, agree with their view, try to defend their view, you'll be better at being able to argue against the view because you've already worked through the view. It's just basic debate technique. But Christians don't ever want to put themselves on that side of things, but I don't know why. No. I don't know. Uh, well, okay. This gets into a whole thing of Mariology. Okay, I will argue, I will argue that it's, it's a later development. I know some Catholics would argue no, but I think it's much more of a later development. But even if, it, even if you try to use that, they, uh, even Catholics teach the only reason she was sinless was because of a divine supernatural act upon God to preserve her from the corruption of sin because she was going to bear Christ. And uh, she could not be sin. Not, no, not because she chose. It was, yeah, God did a miracle in her because she could not have a sinful nature because if she did, she would pass it on to Jesus. That was, that was the, that's the Catholic argument. People always think, it, oh, it's because they wanted to make Mary a God. No, they're trying to understand, they're not trying to pass on to Jesus a sinful nature, so that's why they preserve, they try to preserve Mary from sin. That becomes a whole different discussion there, right? But that's a good question, but no, this would not be an argument that Mary did it on her own, right? In fact, they would believe she was born, what's the term? Oh, come on. I hear Protestants all the time say that it refers to Jesus. Immaculate conception. Okay. Remember, I got into the big argument with a woman at work who's a Catholic. No, that's not about Mary. That's about Jesus. And then she called her Catholic priest, and he, he, he was like, when a Baptist knows more than you, you're probably going to hell. <laughs> and I'm like, hey, wait a minute. I'm not like all Baptist, okay? Right? I know more than most Catholics, okay? Right? But it was kind of funny that he was kind of rude that way. But yeah, I mean, what is he? What are they going to do? I mean, Catholic going to go find another Catholic church? I mean, you know, so I, I wish I could be. Oh, yeah, I, I'm usually that rude, okay? But okay, you get the idea, all right? He goes on to say, men can be perfect, and some have been. This thesis obviously categorically rejects any doctrine of original sin that men have a corrupt nature as a result of Adam's fall. This leads to the following thesis in which Pelagius describes the status of Adam and his progeny. All right, so we won't, we won't get into all of that. You get the idea. Basically, he teaches man can be sinless. And that's, and that's uh, uh, look, whatever you think about Pelagius, let's give him credit. He is taking his view to its logical conclusion, right? I have respect for Pelagius because he, he didn't play any game. He knew what he was claiming and he knew what that meant. 
right? If the will is protected and it's free, this is the result. What it can't stand is for Christians who want to, they still want depravity, they still want original sin, but they still want freedom of the will. You can't, the two can't be reconciled. Because if the nature is corrupt, the nature inherit, has to influence what? The will! Right? Because depravity, we believe depravity impacts what? Mind and heart. If the mind and heart are corrupted, the will has got to be influenced. Because what else do you have than your mind and your heart? That deals with your desires, that deals with your emotions, and this deals with your thought. Therefore, your will, but they want to believe that will is not influenced by anything. <laughs> and it just makes no, and again, and if you're going to say that, then what do you have to prove to me? People can be sinless. So guess what? For, and I've told this to every semi-Pelagian and Pelagian I've ever argued with. Let's not debate. Let's believe in free will. I work with you. Just prove to me you can be sinless. And we, I will convert to semi-Pelagianism. That's all you got to do. Now, you want to convert me because you think me being reformed is, you know, three seconds away from, you know, the pit of hell. So all you got to do is prove, just show me. And then you'll be at work and you'll hear them gossiping about someone. You hear them slandering someone. You hear them grumbling and complaining. Do all things without... Right, okay, right. You... Wait, you're not giving thanks in all things? Well, what's going on? Like, and, you, and just constantly, oh, you, know, you see them say something or do something, and you're kind of like, well, I think I'm hearing sin. Well, you know, uh, well, uh, my will is still free. Well, then why don't you just stop doing it? It's an easy thing for a semi-Pelagian or a Pelagian to prove. The will is free. Do it. Guess what? I, and I like my perspective better because I believe the will is not free and it's corrupted by sin and all I got to do is prove it. <laughs> that's, that's not an excuse to sin, but you get the idea. It's a, I don't have to do anything to prove it because it's going to do what? It's going to manifest itself because, you know, someone at work is going to say something to me and I'm going to respond in a wrong way. I'm going to be mad. I'm going to grumble. I'm going to complain. You know, I, I, you may say something that's not 100% accurate. You may lie because of selfish reasons, right? We all know it, right? We all, do, we all do it every single day. Every day we wake up. I don't, at the end of every day, I didn't love God the way I was supposed to love God. I didn't love others the way I was supposed to love. I did this, I did this. I didn't, I didn't glorify God with everything I say. I didn't prevent my mouth from no corrupt communication. I mean, go through all the scripture. Be ye holy. Well, it might, it, did your holiness today matches, match God's holiness? Why not? And we would argue, we can't. That's why we needed a Savior. Should we pursue holiness? It's not an excuse. Now, I, now I, do under, I do understand Pelagius' frustration. I do understand his frustration because he believed that everyone was just making an excuse. And, and he was frustrated. I understand his frustration. 
Because it does kind of get irritating that Christians always have an excuse why they don't do the things they're supposed to do. Because they always place it on some external reason, right? Well, I was too busy, and this got in the way, and this got in the way. Or you just didn't care, and you just don't want to. Like, remember what I always tell people when it comes to studying the Bible or listening to sermons? Don't tell me you couldn't. Tell me you didn't want to. Because that's, more, that's, that's fair. That's right. That's just, like, don't make it an excuse for everything. Now, I know what people say, well, I really did want to. Typically, not in every day, not every day, but typically what we want, we find a way to accomplish. Right? I mean, we did. When, when I worked, I worked. Right? And especially when I lived in Nebraska, my friend at work, work we'd be like 11 o'clock. We'd go sit somewhere. Guess what we'd do? Now, did I always want to sit there? And no, sometimes I wanted to go home or sometimes I wanted to eat. But I did because I wanted to, right? I put that first, right? Does that make sense? So, like, sometimes we make excuses, and Pelagius was sick of the excuses. He was sick of the excuses. So, I want to make sure you understand, his motivation was right. Pelagius' motivation was right. We do not, his motives were pure, it were, I, I completely... I, I, I will praise him for his motivation, but sometimes what happens to our right motivations? Well, they're still corrupted by sin, right? Okay, and so his motivation was good, but he wanted to find a humanistic solution and not a biblical solution. In what way? Mm-hmm. Completely, freely on your own. So isn't that an excuse? That's not an excuse? It's not an excuse. Because you didn't have to. You are just as equally able not to. So you have no excuse. So why didn't I choose? That's something you would have to ask for yourself, and he would possibly at some point begin, begin to question your even sincerity about even God. Because at some point he'd be like, look, what's, what's your issue? Now, we've got to remember, where did Pelagius live? In a monastery. And he was a eunuch. So, okay. Well, it, yeah, it would have definitely been a different perspective on life. Right? When you wake up and, you know, what, what, depending on the monastery, whatever time they woke up for morning prayer, you know, doing the office of the readings, the divine office, I mean, this life was saturated with God's word. And if he sees in the world a world that nobody seems to care, you can understand. Yeah, I didn't have children. Yeah. Well, children is the best example of depravity. Because you all know, like, I did not teach my kids this. They didn't learn this behavior. They didn't learn that attitude. Where did it come from? And you're like, why? And then even, and like, what is even more frustrating is, yes, you even discipline and give them incentive not to do the bad. Like, your life will be 50 times better not to do it. And then you're like, why? What is wrong with you? But we all know what is wrong with them. And it's hard not to, from a parental st standpoint, to see the action and not the nature. Because we think like Pelagius. 
All right, we made it, we made it pretty far, and I think that's a good summary. So for everyone listening online, hopefully now everyone is caught up, and anyone missing, make sure you tell them I'll post this sermon, and we'll get everyone caught up, and it will hopefully Sunday morning. We, we only got how many more to go? Okay, do we have 11? 11, okay. That's, that's 30 minutes, easy. Okay. Now, I think the rest of them could become, I think, <clears throat> well, I know, but we had to do a lot of review. Okay, because I wanted, to, I wanted to make sure everybody was on the same page, right? But um, the next, the rest of ones, they're really based off what come before. So they're not, that, the rest of them should go relatively easy. I think we've kind of, you've got the basic idea. You've got the meat of Pelagian thought, right? So we'll go through the other ones a lot quicker, and then we can get to the decrees of God, and then we can get back to the canons of Dort before the anniversary year is over. Right? No, maybe. Until, wait, we get to the decrees of God, chaos will ensue, but that's okay. All right, let's pray. Lord God, we come before you this evening. Lord, we, we take for granted that you have given us a mind that is, can think, that we can question, that we, we have the ability to understand that we exist and understand things around us. However, so many times we're not very good stewards of what you have given us and we just flow through life with no thought, with no understanding, and so many times that thinking and that understanding is 100% opposed to your word. We have no, that, Lord, we, we stand condemned for that. I pray that we would become mindful of the gift you've given us, which is the ability of thought and to reason, and use this to think about why we do things, what we believe, why we believe it, so that we can try to purge out the wrong way of thinking and to have that thinking shaped and influenced by your word, being aware that we have a sinful nature that will constantly pull us in the wrong direction. I, 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 thinking about what Pelagius taught, and you see it in all of our lives and sometimes in our very speech, it reminds me that ignorance of these things does not negate its influence upon anyone in this room. And the only people to be, to be blamed for that is ourselves for not caring enough to think about why we think the way we do. I pray that that would cease and we would change our thinking about that. And I ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said...